evening, ladies and gentlemen. As Dean of the Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences, it's my great pleasure to welcome you here to UCL tonight, if you aren't already members of the UCL community. Thank you for turning up in the wind and the nasty little seeds that get in everybody's hair and eyes and throats. Um, I'm sure we've got a wonderful evening in store for us with Michael Stewart's inaugural lecture, to which we're greatly looking forward. Um, Chris Pinney will first of all introduce Michael. I'm sure for most of us here he'll need absolutely no introduction, but Chris will do his best to remind us why we've come and what a marvellous colleague he is. And afterwards the vote of thanks will be given by David Lann, who is Artistic Director of The Young Vic, uh, to which we're also very much looking forward to hearing what he has to say. And afterwards, everyone is very welcome to join us in a glass of wine, which will be in the South Cloisters downstairs. Thank you very much. Uh, well, good evening, um, everyone. Uh, welcome. Um, Okay, it's an honor uh, to be able to introduce Professor Michael Stewart's inaugural lecture. He's going to talk to us tonight about the importance of the dissemination of knowledge and the necessity of communicating arcane ideas to as wide a readership as possible. A lesson that hitherto unseen photographic evidence suggests was inculcated at an early age. It was only a few years after this that he moved from being a passive consumer to an active producer. Michael's ideas and activities were already reaching a wide audience, as is evidenced by this reference to him in a 1974 diary entry by John Ray, the headmaster of Westminster School. Quote, I have to lay down the law with the parents of a day boy who is a member of the International Marxist Group. He is leaving in July to go to Hampstead Comprehensive School, but is already cutting lessons when they clash with his political activities. Last Saturday, he failed to appear at all, and when challenged by his housemaster, said that he had to take part in a squat organised by the party. Apparently, Ray, perhaps best remembered for opposing the assisted places scheme with the line that, quote, you do not deal with a famine by sending a few lucky children to lunch at the Ritz, subsequently asked the cabinet secretary to send him a note on the activities of the IMG. Whether John Hunt actually has that report in his briefcase, I am unable to say. Michael's Marxist sympathies had in fact been in evidence many years earlier when he'd taken up tools in his nursery in a demonstration of solidarity with international labour and insisted on constructing his own cot. <laughs> As he left his elitist bastion for Hampstead egalitarianism, his hair got longer and his face grew softer the further he got from the toffs of Westminster and encountered normal people, albeit those who lived near Hampstead. <laughs> Here he is with the drama group during their rehearsal for the Threepenny Opera. These images are proof of the Jesuitical doctrine that if you have a child for seven years and tell them lies, they will turn them, you will turn them completely against you. Michael's subsequent life inevitably took him far beyond Hampstead 
to the even more interesting life world of Eastern and Central European Roma, who have been fellow interlocutors, not only as here, um, sorry, not only in his considerable scholarship, uh, here um, celebrating the christening of his first son, but also in various endeavors which have expressed his political solidarity with their continuing scandalous oppression and marginalization. And here with Roma caught between the new Czech Republic and Slovakia in 1989. Building on his highly successful career in documentary filmmaking, here he's filming in Romania in 1990 with the distinguished directors Melissa Llewellyn Davis and Molly Deneen. Michael has given ethnographic and documentary filmmaking a new and remarkable prominence at UCL. The Open City Film Festival attracts enormous crowds and his My Street project is pioneering new and important kinds of filmic collaboration to document London and other cities. Michael is going to talk to us today about the importance of reaching wider audiences and of the necessity of communicating our findings in clear and comprehensible language. Because I completely disagree with this approach and revel in the recondite, bizarre and inexplicable, I thought it would only be appropriate to end my introduction with something truly obscure and likely to appeal to the smallest possible audience, <laughs> while remaining true, I hope, to some of Michael's enduring concerns. Among Michael's many accomplishments is his recent contextualization of My Street, his innovative filmmaking experiment in what he has termed a multiply authored zone of engagement within a British tradition of autoethnography or anthropology of ourselves, uh, stretching back to the mass observation movement of the 1930s. That should be here. One of the founders of that movement, Charles Madge, organized what became known as the Oxford Collective Poem. Rather than being an individualist um, poem written by an exceptional individual, usually, as he noted, under the stimulus of love, alcohol, or political passion, collective, multiply authored poems could be churned out in the fashion of daily journalism, he argued. Madge, as Michael has recently noted in a wonderful article in the journal Social Anthropology, was influenced by French Surrealism, and in particular by Aragon and Breton's embrace of Isidore Lucien Ducasse's programme of a, quote, poetry made by all. Significantly, Madge also noted that in compiling the poem, incidents in films and encounters in the street figured significantly. Writing in the wake of the Oxford Collective Poem, the work of 12 undergraduates, Grigson's new verse complained that it devalued the identity of the poet, redirecting attention from the performance to the mere profession and turning the poet into something like a footballer. Given Michael's very early insistence that the bourgeois sanctity of childhood should be deoraticized through productive activities and his valorization of the honesty of manual labor, we thought it fitting that on the occasion of his elevation to a professorship, his colleagues should contribute as fellow laborers to a collective UCL poem. <laughs> Madge's idle Oxford undergraduates had a whole month to collaborate. Michael's harassed colleagues 
had just a few days to produce the UCL collective poem, which we now offer as a tribute to Michael. Madge concluded his account of the origins of his mass poem by noting that it has, quote, the sense of decay and imminent doom that characterizes contemporary Oxford. Our effort, suitably padded with a little Ducassian plagiarism, testifies, we hope, to a very different mood in contemporary UCL and is offered as a mark of our respect and affection for Michael. And it reads, this collaborative uh, labour of ours, lilies of the field labouring red, speed dreaming through tubes, Budapest backstreet, velvet, smoky moustaches and haystacks like witches' hats, dark suits and big cars arranged on a bench, a street scene, bicycle flashing by, incomprehensible email sent in motion. This will become the theme, you'll see. Repeat their warnings, cackling laughter from the back of meetings, claims to know Lyko Felix's manager, the hip and the wing of the right used to be left, European Roma whirlwind watching the world go by, flapping on the cobbles, he sends incomprehensible emails while he bicycles and uses considerable amounts of dressing on his lunchtime salads. <laughs> With that brief, poetic, collaborative, collective homage, please join me, and I hope to say I have a um, gift-wrapped copy of this for you, Michael, as a memento. Please join me in welcoming Professor Michael Stewart, who will now present his inaugural lecture. Thank you very much, and thank you, Chris, for that wonderful um, introduction, and um, all my colleagues for everything you do for um, me and all the people I bring into our department and into UCL. Um, it's a fantastic place to work. Um, tonight, my subject is the Polis University. Building partnerships in a global city. To speak truthfully, an inaugural is not really a wedding. After all, in my case, I've been bound by contract to this institution for longer than I can barely remember. But it does mark a new stage in an attachment. And so the old rhyme came to mind. Something old, something new. Something borrowed, something blue, and a silver sixpence in her shoe. So to the old. Tonight, I want to weave elements of my biography through the talk because the questions I'm asking and the solutions I propose derive directly from my personal experience. Of that, a little bit more right away. I'm sure I'm not the only person in this room who has the sensation that my career is as much a matter of chance as of design. I've been in some great places at the right time. The Royal Court Theatre, at the moment when Nicholas Wright opened it up and rediscovered its original dynamism. At the London School of Economics, in a cohort convinced that we were the future elite of British anthropology, taught by what we thought, I think with some justification, were the greatest minds in anthropology at that time. In Hungary, amongst Roma or Gypsies, whose constant use of a kind of performative style in their social interactions led me on to a lifelong interest in documentary film. 
And above all, of course, in Eastern Europe, as the dictatorships of 50 years tweaked, lost balance, and fell as spectacularly as the statues that came down with them. And then at the BBC, in the last few years before reality TV drove out serious cinematic and documentary film. And now, of course, here at UCL, at a moment of great opportunity and great challenge. Which leads me to the new, a look into the future of the institution that's given me my living for 18 years. And I start with a commitment that's at once social, financial, and educational. UCL is setting out on a new venture, creating a new campus in Olympic Park. How can we develop a teaching and a research strategy that will provide us with a viable model to bolster, to broaden and to broadcast our core activity, our core mission, to create a diverse intellectual community engaged with and challenging the world for the better? I think we can only do that by fundamentally rethinking the nature of a university, its role in society, its role in the city in which we sit, and in the global economy of which it's an increasing part, as well as the forms of education we deliver. Still following the marital ditty, my argument is it's by borrowing from others, borrowing from understanding and practice developed by others, that we can succeed. A new start seems to call up the idea of revolutionary cleansing, the blank sheet or tabula rasa. But all my life experience and everything that social science teaches us is that that's a false god to follow. You have to start, you can only change by building upon the existing. <clears throat> if we want to move away from our old ways, which I believe tend to disciplinary and institutional closure, we're going to have to learn to borrow from others who've made such moves, as well as building upon some of the adventures of our more courageous and adventurous colleagues. And all this is to be done in the name, and this is the blue, of remaining pure and faithful to the original disruptive, inclusive spirit in which UCL was founded. To provide a universal vision for the entire world we live in today, but today, I believe we need new ways of doing this. As is clear from the title of my talk, I, like others, think that part of the solution lies in what I call a porous university. And so I come to the silver sixpence in my shoe. There are many ways of taking porosity, but tonight I want to persuade those of you who need it that the, that the practice of enterprise offers surprising and unexpected potential to a university. And to demonstrate to those of you who need no such convincing, unexpected ways where the recombinatory power of enterprise can take us in the next few decades. Now, enterprise, as everyone in this room knows, has a pretty foul name in much of the academy. People come to work in universities in part because they've explicitly turned their backs upon commercial society, going into business. But beyond our emotional affinities, there's something deeper and more problematic. It seems to me, this is a quote from Thomas Carlyle. There's a line running from Thomas Carlyle 
his disparaging dismissal of UCL's new broad offer of courses, drawing us down by association with the haggle of the market, through Cardinal Newman's lectures that became the idea of the university, through to today's denunciations of the corporate colonization of education. <clears throat> Newman, who wrote his lectures to attack the UCL model of education, not the popularizers of scientific knowledge, as you can read, for creating mechanics institutes. Today, according to the Professor of English Literature at UEA in East Anglia, <coughs> universities are being turned from centers of learning into profit centers. The novelist Alex Preston has this to say on the screen. Stefan Collini's fluently composed book, What Are Universities For?, argues that there's a profound opposition between the kind of goal or goal-oriented training or problem-solving associated with professional degrees and the true intellectual inquiry in the university where the agenda is by definition ungovernable. The truth is that all of us in research share the, open share the goal of open-ended and boundless research. The question is, how today, in Britain, we can achieve this. Colini and many of the other polemicists today are understandably enraged by the imposition of exogenous values upon their academic activity. But then, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. Impact, one of their targets, is not just, not even mainly, about economics. Enterprise is, I believe, and always has been, and always will be, central to activity. By enterprise, I mean making or doing things that people want or need. Sometimes that leads to the creation of monetary wealth. At other times, it leads to the creation of social wealth. It's the power of human beings to observe, to reason, and to create, to make things happen. It's what academics do. UCL is a collection of enterprising individuals forging academic careers. <clears throat> so to begin to explain why I lay such store by enterprise, I want to bring you back to the site where I first understood the liberating potential of an entrepreneurial mindset. In 1984, I went to Hungary, to a small town in communist Hungary, to work with a group of the most socially and economically deprived and culturally excluded citizens of that country. Life expectancy was 10 years below national average. Educational achievement was and is still catastrophic. Children were, were shunted into the schools for the education subnormal. And though there was full employment, thanks to vagaries of the um, planning system and average wage legislation, the factories where gypsies worked were filthy and often very unhealthy. The people I ended up living with, about 100,000 people, of, or a group of 100,000 people in Hungary, of whom I live with one community, were the most culturally distinctive group of gypsies in the area. And as such, were under huge pressure, tempered with various sweeteners, to give up their language, to abandon endogamy, often forced out of their residentially segregated neighbourhoods, and all this in the name of assimilating into the then, the working, the ruling class of Hungary, the working class. If after a generation of more of this policy it hadn't worked, a major factor was the unwillingness of the majority population to let the gypsies in. But more positively, 
who is an area of life where the ROM, as they call themselves, were able to creatively recombine resources and have fun doing so. The horse markets, where much time was spent both in practice and maybe above all in imagination, not only gave them extra income, but supplied a viable means to imagine themselves as autonomous human agents directing their own lives, setting their own agenda in their dealings with others. There was a straightforward Kurtznerian sense, or Austrian economic sense, in which these men were entrepreneurs. They noticed price discrepancies and acted on them. They engaged in arbitrage. It's a social role with remarkably few entry requirements, well suited to this very marginal population. <clears throat> they were extraordinarily flexible in the assets they picked up and traded. This was something, their facility at making money in this way was something that, of course, made them targets of socialist or communist economic policy, but it also provided them with the resources to survive the system change in 1989, as you can read in this little example behind me. But the more important sense for tonight in which they were entrepreneurial was that behind all their trades, there was a creative process of adaptation, of learning. They were masters of the market process, the stuff we don't teach about in university. They were battling, they were capable to battle to alter the terms of trade in the market, backing hunches, grasping possibilities unseen by others, and persuading their exchange partners to see the world as they saw it. All of which was based with an intense attention to the world around them. In all, these, in all this business, what they were doing was bringing together bits of the world that were unaware of each other's existence, combining and conjoining. Something not entirely dissimilar from the kind of thing that we too are engaged in in universities. I take my lead here from the great Italian historian Carlo Ginzburg for whom the analytical skills of social scientists don't differ in reality as much as we imagine from those of people like my illiterate gypsy friends. In the acclaimed essay, Clues and the Historical Method, Scientific Method, Ginsburg traces the origin of the epistemological tradition of the interpretive human sciences, like anthropology. The traces of these the sciences, detective work as well, and indeed psychoanalysis he includes in this. He traces it back, these disciplines, back to the ancient human facility for tending to the significance of everyday and mundane signs in our environment. He looks at skills like the ability to identify a defective horse by the condition of its hocks or its teeth, an impending storm by sudden changes in the wind, or hostile intention in the sudden change of expression. And he points out that such skills, of course, aren't learned in manuals, can't be taught in classrooms, but are required from life, from concrete existence. And as such, this kind of knowledge is a form of democratic knowledge, constituting a common human patrimony, shared to some extent amongst all social classes and places, diverse but shared. So to sum up this part of the lecture, just as Yuri Shleskin has argued that we're all becoming a bit Jewish, I'm saying 
good scholars have always been a bit gypsy. What does this mean for the place of enterprise in the working life of a university fit for the 21st century? There are three malaises, at least three, of the current set of the university, three that I'd like to present tonight, and all of which I think we could change by opening up the university in various ways. One, we are in many parts deadly conservative. We don't want to be. We say we're not, but we are. Marx is famous for describing the creative destruction of capitalism, of commercial society, in these terms, that all that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned. Well, I could see a bit more of that in British universities, to be honest. One crucial way outset traditionalism shows up is in the way, in many parts of British universities, we provide an undergraduate education, in certain respects unchanged over the past 50 years. <clears throat> in many places, we still organise undergraduate degrees, so the possessor of a good first-class degree is capable of proceeding to doctoral research in that subject without further ado. In other words, the most clearly identifiable outcome of our teaching is the production of individuals who will replace ourselves. In 1965, this may have made a lot of sense. But today, in my department, there were 14 times more students than there were in 1965. <coughs> so, uh, let me just um, give an illustration of the growth of student numbers. Half of these students today are postgraduates, it should be, it should be noted. <coughs> but the pedagogical model in this time has not shifted enough, at least. You can see the board, how the student numbers have gone up. The one worrying question here, is whether, far from the entrepreneurial spirit that I'm talking about, whether we've inadvertently, and without any intention, become rent seekers, like a medieval sovereign sitting on the mint of credentials, with an estimated, av an av estimated average lifetime premium of 200, this is the chart from America, but 250,000 pounds for a graduate degree. And I suppose people who graduate from UCL do better than that. There's always going to be a supply of students. For whom a degree is a credential that unlocks highly selective, high-earning professions. But don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I or we who teach here or in other universities are only interested in our most academic students. Everybody I know here in UCL is concerned with, is, is, knows and, and observes their duty to form the minds of all those who come to study here and to help turn themselves into critical, constructive citizens. But we could be much more ambitious about how we do that today. Take the whole debate over the pressure of knowledge for its own sake <clears throat> in, over the past couple of years in British academia and elsewhere. Most of us today don't share Cardinal Newman's neoplatonic conviction that the study of a field of knowledge, a discipline, 
for its own sake, will lead on, through gazing philosophically at the walls of the cave, to the revelatory truth of faith, right reason, in his case, leading, of course, to Catholic faith. But still, the terms of reference in this debate remain those of Newman, minus the theology. Is there no intrinsic pleasure in solving problems, in understanding matters of public concern, in acquiring the forms of attentiveness, the disciplines of creative activity, filmmaking, drawing, acting, to name but some? Second malaise. We're not nearly as socially inclusive as we want to be. We say the right things, but we need to do more. <clears throat> Nearly probably all of us worry that our intake is socially and ethnically narrow and we'd like to see that change. But we've, have we considered sufficiently how far the way we teach and what we teach might impact upon the attractiveness, our attractiveness, to people whose parents did not go through a university system? Whether this reflects London is an open question, perhaps. Universities, we all know, they arose in the Middle Ages, out of and within the monastic model of withdrawal from the world, prayer, study, seclusion, contemplation. And we've never completely broken free from those roots. The notion of closing ourselves off to the outside, to the noise of the outside world, to gain distance on its follies, to find the space to think, remains a powerful feature of our mindset. But closing ourselves off for all its benefits has the unintended consequence of excluding many of those who are not like us but might like to come in today. UCL has had bouts of, does have bouts of courageous radicalism. Three years ago we opened a school, a secondary school. Some felt that perhaps we were going to usurp the role of the local authority. But that is what a porous university does. Takes risks, gets out in the world, gets our hands dirty, and learns in the process. And despite being entirely unselective, UCL Academy was the highest performing mixed-sex maintained school in the borough of Camden last year, according to the DfE, with more added value per pupil than any other school in Camden, beating all the private schools as well. That's an amazing result for a school that's A, new, and B, focuses upon science and maths. 75% of our students, their students, last year, won places at Russell Group Universities. That's great, but we should be doing much, much more. Third malaise. For me, our research environment is too enclosed. We aspire to openness, but too often we speak to and work with the usual suspects. We tend to think that research is something that only goes on in universities. Stefan Collini's score for the limits of the think tank or commercial research is just one egregious example of this. But we all need to get beyond the idea that the way people think, solve problems in the outside world is inherently less interesting, less innovative or disruptive than what goes on in here. And related to this, we valued our research over teaching. We allow only a one-way flow between the two. Research informs teaching, not vice versa. This has begun to change here at UCL, both under our previous provost and now um, even more intensively. But we have a long way to travel. 
In respect of all these three malaises, our rigidly conservative undergraduate offering, our failure to broaden our intake, and our lack of engagement with other sorts of researchers outside the university world, the creation of a new campus in the Olympic Park offers a chance for change. So what are the forms of attentiveness to others? What are the possibilities of recombination? What can the entrepreneurial spirit, in my sense, offer us to inspire a new sort of university to emerge in Stratford? Here are some answers. Well, actually, on my board is um, a warning from um, Prince Metternich, um, sent to London, sent to the Court of St. James in London. In 1828, when the OECO opened, we offered courses. There were no degrees because we had an extra legal status. We weren't allowed to be a university. We offered courses in subjects that no other university in Europe would teach. Amongst the most subversive, English, modern languages, English language and literature, political economy, to name but the most likely to bring on England's ruin. Let's do the same now. Let's put hot coals under today's metamese. In our teaching, we need to rethink the goals and the means of education, of undergraduate education. We've won the fight for the right to teach what we want, academic freedom. But what about the right for students to learn what they want, what they deem to be important in the world today? Can we let our students plan their learning? And their learning paths put them and their abilities at the centre of our research, of our, of our courses. There's expertise out there, including in our students, who in many ways are more aware of how to deal with this rapidly changing world than their ageing teachers. This is, of course, basic anthropology. Everyone, who's the, all of my colleagues who've done fieldwork in unfamiliar environments, know, whether it's an island Melanesia, in the rainforest of the Congo, in the slums of socialist Cuba, know that our uneducated, often illiterate informants are wiser in their world than we can ever be. But the same is true of London. We need to put this knowledge into our teaching practice. So let's start again. Why not begin by designing some of our courses around problem solving in the real world? way, so rather than doing it the old way, teaching a, teaching a lecture on what, do, what does anthropology tell us about the experience of people who've been through mass political violence, let's turn it around and say, with that, say together with our students in the classroom, what do I need to know, what do I need to do if I'm sent by the NGO, by the charity I'm working for, to Rwanda in the late 1990s, to Bosnia in 1995. Put their, bring their expertise into the classroom. Problem-based teaching or learning can also, of course, be entirely academic. A three-week class on whether the rise of social complexity entails political hierarchy. Not, I'd sit on that. But let's do it as a problem-solving exercise. And, of course, the crucial point is that once we begin to organise our teaching around real-world questions, the answers stop being disciplinary. We then have to bring in other disciplines, and indeed more academic outsiders into the classroom. If you want to understand what you need to do in Bosnia in 1995, it's no good just to go and talk to an anthropologist. 
But this, of course, fits seamlessly into our students' understanding that problems are not one-sided, but are multifaceted in the modern world. That a single discipline doesn't address the questions they want answered. More than this, why don't we go and study? Why don't we study how people in non-educational settings learn and solve problems? Why have we treated our courses like a rehearsal of the English National Opera or the Young Vic? How would we work together with our students on creating new knowledge in a multidisciplinary team working together for a number of weeks on solving some of the key issues of our time? To put a slightly romantic gloss on this, but not, but not I think, false, we could be in the business of reviving the spirit of that now celebrated 16th century scholar and mathematician, John Dee. Dee wrote in English, in order to make Euclidean mathematics available to those without a university education, without Latin. He provided demonstrations of mathematical principles that readers could perform themselves without special education or training, and by doing so, he enabled the revolutionary transformation of navigation at the end of the 16th century in this country. I'm looking at the D who appears in Francis Yates' great book, The Theatre of the World. The D of magic, science, history, literature, the whole encyclopedia of knowledge available in his time. Under such a sign, we could be engaged in creating holistic citizens for the 21st century. Citizens whose training in just-in-time knowledge, the knowledge systems of the internet age, will be prepared for the, world of, the changed world of careers that we're just entering into now. <clears throat> Secondly, new teaching models, like the ones I've just been describing, will allow us to address aspects of the second malaise. One of the saddest Features of the modern university is the dramatic decline, down by 50%, in part-time study. If we taught in rehearsal-type blocks of weeks, it would be possible in a quite different way for students to come into the university to do CPD or part-time courses, to participate in an immersive model of learning, or protected time learning, you might call it, in which they get the full intensity of engagement with the life of a university for a period of time, <clears throat> and therefore can gain something that attending the Thursday morning lecture and the Friday afternoon class can never do, can never give them. Of course, there are issues of retention and path progression with that block model of teaching, but it seems to me those are technical details. A change like the one I'm describing could really be transformative. The move to learning as rehearsal allows to drop the entire term structure of the British university system. People wouldn't have to teach more than they do now, but we could have courses running through the whole year, convenient to those who don't belong to the university. Think of the nature of a teaching environment, when all the generations of our country might be present in the room working on problems together with people coming in to take our new courses for their own sake, for their intrinsic worth. Such proposals are not just entrepreneurial speculation. Nicholas Maxwell at UCL has run a lifelong campaign to build a university that doesn't just teach knowledge, but teaches the wisdom of how to use that knowledge in the world. 
John Agar from Science and Technology Studies, his monumental study of scientific discovery in the 20th century, leads to the conclusion that it's that much of what's happened in, in, in discovery, in improving the human condition in the past 120 years, has derived from imaginative or practical engagement of working worlds with the world of the laboratory. The sooner we bring the working worlds of the modern world outside into our university, the better the chances for humanity in the next century. Also, by the way, there's no tabula rasa, so we're very lucky that there are colleagues across this university who are already doing this kind of thing. Wendy Carling, in economics, responded to the outcry of economic students across the whole of the Western world at the fact that they had no preparation for the crisis of 2008, and that they hadn't even been taught about 1880 or 1930 in their economics degrees. She responded to that by reinventing the first year of the economics curriculum here at UCL, working with people abroad. Colleagues in the museums of UCL have created a program called Share Academy, linking up people in exhibition and museums across the city, benefiting both ways. Closer to home, my anthropology colleague, Jerome Lewis, who's working with an engineer, Mickey Hackley, has been doing advanced citizen science, protecting natural resources in the rainforest of the Congo. The Institute of Making is entirely devoted, one that's housed inside UCL, it's one of our treasures, housed inside UCL, is entirely devoted to connecting the resources here of engineers and makers with those that exist outside. We've created an incubator for startups in, in, um, in the east end of London. And now, thanks to the generosity of Camden Council giving us a 10 year free lease, we have an incubator for cultural startups on the Regent's Canal. Creating partnerships that, in a revised pedagogical model, could to contribute to our teaching and research agenda. But pride of place has to go to, then I use this word advisedly, to the great Carl Gombrich, who has pioneered a Bachelor in Arts and Sciences that has no parallel that I know of in the Western world. This ambition that I've not seen anywhere else. His students are forging the new interdisciplinarity. They're already demanding that he creates an MA back to fell on from their course because they can't go to the departments to the programs that we have running at the moment and there are two quotes from students of his on the board which just demonstrate the um the power of the imagination that is being forged in that crucible all this said a new start does offer the potential for some schumpeterian creative destruction a university is shaped by its environment UCL was created by its founders because they believed that placing a city, placing a university in what was already a world city, and not two, co two days coach drive away in the countryside, would change the intellectual agenda of the institution. Creating a Stratford campus could offer us opportunities, great opportunities in this respect. Well, the park's peculiar paradox, as Alan Penn has often pointed out, is that while the local connectivity is weak, its global links are extraordinarily strong. In the Olympic Park, we'll be working the location known the world over. This has some sound trivial, but it has implications for doing networked events in different parts of the world, a project that we've been 
um, collaborating on with outside partners. <clears throat> but it's also recognised across the United Kingdom, and we can use that connectivity. London is host, 33 boroughs in London have more than 100 languages spoken in them. In Newham, 104 languages are spoken. Now, the po these populations, if we can bring them into the university, can provide a gateway to the world beyond. Missing an idea entirely from the Young Vic's contribution to the Cultural Olympiad a couple of years ago, we can use the links that we build with London communities through research, education, engagement, to build organically on our core activity out into the world far beyond. And of course, using modern technologies, we can then bring those people back, offering MOOCs for free, offering credits on the back of MOOCs, and then accumulating credits and coming to London to finish your degree for the best of those students. Funded, one would hope, by a new financial model. But I want to conclude on the potential the partnership and collaboration which Occupation of the Park gives us. We'll be working cheek by jowl alongside some of the best and most creative cultural organisations in the country. In Europe, beyond, Sadler's Wells, the VNA, English National Opera across the river in Woolwich. We need to embed these partnerships, it seems to me, at the centre of our work. <clears throat> we really, I've already talked to you about the ways in which the multidisciplinary learning of the rehearsal can contribute to our teaching. Let's think about this in relation to research. Last year, we employed a creative entrepreneur in residence who works across the university, linking up some of the best researchers in the world with some of our most engaged and innovative staff. There are some quite technical projects that are going on, one linking performers, theatre performers, with computer scientists to study the use of eye gaze the primary device by which we assess people we interact with. But tonight I want to talk about two slightly more accessible projects. First, following a meeting in, not this meeting, but following another meeting in 2014 with one of the great artists of the modern world, Peter Sellers, and many UCL staff, we've been pursuing the idea that performing artists could enhance, extend, and disrupt academic research to yield interesting an interesting spiral of limitless outcomes. Kelly Hunter is an actress and director, and she's been doing some fascinating work with theatre companies using Shakespeare to engage children with autism. This became a major research project that then became a production of Midsummer's, two productions, Midsummer's Night Dream and The Tempest. And in particular, productions of The Tempest that were designed for children with autism and their carers, in which small groups, groups of 12 or 15 children will be involved in the production itself. <coughs> Here's a quote. <coughs> but what's brilliant about Kelly's work, aside from its artistic merit, the compassion and effectiveness of it, is that it creates a laboratory for the study of gesture, speech, movement, expression. Things that our scientists, our neuroscientists want to study, but which in their experiments, which are rather dull, repetitive, and un um, in unreal conditions, they find very difficult to do. So what they're going to do, working inside Kelly's projects, is study what happens in the brains of the children as they're participating, what happens to their motor skills, their body perception, how does creativity occur in these children. 
can these, can these environments be useful for diagnosis of autism? Or placing people on the autistic spectrum? How does the self-confidence of children increase? <clears throat> and how can we disseminate, disseminate these methods nationally? Thanks to the presence of the Institute of Education and UCL in this kind of multidisciplinary environment, Liz Pelicano is working on developing a model to take this out. Well, my second example illustrates how this sort of collaboration can enable us to engage with crucial aspects of public culture. There's a widespread, we all know this, there's a widespread public sense that science is something that we don't understand and we don't engage in. A Cambridge colleague wrote a very nice piece in the conversation last week about this, saying that science is culturally regarded as an outsider discipline. Something that's too difficult for the average person in the street to understand and something that's felt not to be really applicable to their lives. <clears throat> in 1963, um, it still remains a distant aspiration. Ivan Rogers, a colleague in computer science, has been working with one of our new partner organizations, Fevered Sleeper, a theatre company who specialise in producing uh, uh, performances for very small children, devising experimental tools to measure audience engagement in a sort of Teletubby type, type um, um, device. But now, thanks to the collaboration with English National Opera that we've established, she's putting in place a much more ambitious form of citizen science. Extending the audience experience through augmented reality technology, embedding interactive installations in the foyer space. It's possible nowadays to sense and measure aspects of the seated audience's experience to infer their behavior. This can include detecting their movements, focus, attention, fidgetiness, with the aim of showing how engaged, how absorbed their emotional state, at what time, and then providing aggregate visualizations of this, of this data. 3D or other, inside the auditorium or outside to a public. All this can be done using infrared cameras, accelerometer, accelerometer sensors placed in people's seats, in armrests, or on wristbands. But these experiments are going to be designed with the audiences themselves and run in real time with members of the public. Just one way in which people can come to see that science is not something that's only done by pointy heads in a white lab coat. What more might be possible at Stratford? What new research and teaching might emerge if UCL had access, say, 20% of the time to a world-class group of actors to work and research with now? There's no time to go into such things tonight, but I'm convinced that such partnerships could transform our teaching and our research. From the obvious anthropologist's interest in the nature of performance and ritual. Through to the practical, material scientists interested in discovering through creative improvisation potential uses of new products. To the educational, performers, seriously good performers, providing lifelike simulacra of, say, medical events. There's much, much more that will come into being, if, but it's not possible to envisage now if we engage these partnerships. There's one final way that moving and recreating can help us reinvent who we are. I take the inspiring example of Ravensbourne, of what a move 
can do to an institution. And the first picture actually makes it look rather nice. It was really a very dull kind of bungalow finishing college, um, finishing school for girls in the balmy woods of Ch uh, from Chislehurst. It was transformed by a visionary, uh, uh, Robin Baker, into one of the most innovative and dynamic universities in Britain. With a set of working procedures and institutional arrangements that gives them an extraordinary flexibility, an enviable flexibility, and an ability to attract an audience, a, a student body, that reflects far better, about three times better, the populations who live in London. UCL began with a great ambition, with great ambition overall. Here is the statement of the original council. Our founders understood that buildings are, as a recent theologian put it, incubators for the practices that shape us into a certain kind of people. Winston Churchill made the same point after the burning down of Parliament in 1940 in the debate whether or not to rebuild Parliament. We shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us, he said. It has to be said, though, at UCL, after this founding ambition, we somewhat lost our way. The great hall and library into which the great white steps and portico of our building was supposed to lead were never built, leaving us with what um, our own institutional history describes as the grandest entrance in London with nothing behind it. And it's still there. <laughs> our present rambling and unimpressive premises indicate that we have comprehensively lost the ambition that our founders had 190 years ago. And that has been a terrible mistake. Maybe now we have the opportunity to put this right. Let's take it in the next few months and years. Thank you very much. I guess uh, the reason that uh, Professor Stewart asked me to make a response to his extremely interesting and challenging inaugural lecture today is that, apart from being a very old friend, I share some of what he calls his life experience. At the Royal Court Theatre, at an especially adventurous outward-looking period, and in the Anthropology Department at the LSE, at a time when, as he says, we really felt as though some tightly tied intellectual knots were really beginning to come under. There may be another reason as well, which is that in my one serious foray into academic research and analysis of an anti-colonial grassroots struggle in Central Africa, I described how beneath the apparent radical break with the past, which that guerrilla-led campaign and its successful outcome seemed to celebrate, there ran a far deeper current of continuities, intellectual, conceptual, symbolic, that had been maintained through thick and thin for centuries, perhaps for even longer than that. This, as I see it, is Professor Stewart's theme, that an emphasis on what he calls the recombinatory power of enterprise 
is not at all a break with underlying UCL traditions or assumptions or indeed practices, but rather a reemergence of its original, its founding impulse to put the principles of academic research accrued and enhanced over centuries to use in searching out the value of newly conceptualized fields of social experience of previously unknown properties of the physical world. He is arguing, as I understand it, that the desire to engage with the world, with society, with the neighborhood, with the street, with the street corner, in all their quotidian reality, creating a two-way flow of knowledge and need and expertise, is and has always been intrinsic to the ethos and the practice of this university. And that the opportunity that the new development in Stratford offers is no more than an occasion to re-energize this, to my mind, thrilling evocation of what academic life could be. Michael refers to the apprehensions of those who fear that this approach will allow the reductivist values of the marketplace to dominate. Well, market values are, of course, significant values, and those apprehensions are significant and valuable too. But I'd say that one of the perennial achievements of the arts has been to promote a whole universe of other values, placing a stress on the infinite potential of the human imagination and our capacity for suffering and our unquenchable desire to relieve suffering of all kinds. Mike referred perhaps over generously to the theatre that I run. We certainly welcome this glimpse of a possible future replete with friendly collaboration that he sketches. The English National Opera has been especially brisk to grasp UCL's outstretched hand. I have no doubt that over time, many other arts organizations and indeed many artists will do so too. Over the last decade, arts organizations and those that fund them, including government, have been caught up in a discussion of the relative merits of the so-called inherent and the so-called instrumental values of the works and the relationships they create. The only occasionally acknowledged umpire in this somewhat futile match of wits has been the Treasury. The approach that Professor Stewart has outlined today, emphasizing the recombinatory power of enterprise, seems to me to open the conversation to a far wider range of participants, and as such, to an admirable position to begin to think once again, about the value of what we as artists, or scientists, or social scientists, or an amalgam of all three do, and what we make, and what we suggest, and what we symbolize to ourselves and to our fellow citizens. Thank you very much, Michael.